Okay, here we are, episode number two. That's right, I got two of them in the can. I'm recording an intro to this one, and I think I'm going to start doing this for all of them. That way I can just kind of give you a heads up what you expect in the podcast. Today I got up and I drove up to Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, it was just a short drive, maybe about an hour from where I live. And I visited with a guy that I served in the Marine Corps with. His name is Doug Mentor. Now, I saw Doug the last time about two years ago. We had our 25-year reunion uh, of our unit going to Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Didn't really get a chance to talk to him a lot then. But I did start following him on social media since then. And I've been intrigued by him. Uh, Doug does post a lot of things about his experience as an African-American man here in America. He also posts a lot of things about the Underground Railroad here recently. In fact, he just took a bicycle trip, not a motorcycle. Him and some buddies got on a bicycle, and they rode from Knoxville, Tennessee, all the way up to Toronto, Canada, following the Underground Railroad. And just some of the stories, unfortunately, we did not get to go deep enough into that as I would have liked. You know what? There's a lot of things I wanted to follow up with Doug about and talk more about, but maybe uh, he and I can get together again and we'll do this again. We had a great time. It's a great conversation, and I hope you have fun and enjoy it. Now, before you go too much further, I do need to warn you, we are two men pushing 50 years old, both served in the Marine Corps. A couple of times the language might get a little salty. It's not too bad, but if you're easily offended... I'd suggest just uh, hitting stop or something. Anyways, ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce you to Doug Mentor. How many followers you got? You're podcast number two, so I don't have a lot of followers. Um, I've got a few followers. What I'm trying to do is uh, take my Facebook page, 365 Things to Do Around Athens. I don't know if you saw that or not. Have you seen that? 365 Things to Do Around Athens. So what I do, and I'm going to film one when I'm done here. I'm going to fly back down to Athens real quick and film one. Basically what I do is I go around and find little things going on in Athens, Tennessee, and I'll do a quick little like selfie mode video. So like today, there's a thing. I'm going to go interview some people. They're doing a thing tomorrow night called Pop-Up. And basically a bunch of vendors are showing up, a bunch of little people just doing these little pop-up tents and little pop-up stores. And um, so I go down there at this park, and I'll interview the people that's setting it up. And they'll do a little selfie thing. They'll talk about it, and we'll put it on Facebook and get it out there. So... I do that. So this is your fun hobby. Yeah, I'm not making any money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. you, I guess you just want to, you enjoy doing it. I do enjoy doing it. I, I, I started doing it because when I moved back to Athens in 2016, um, everybody's like, there's nothing to do around Athens. And I'm thinking. It's fucking gorgeous. It's gorgeous. And I've been, I've been, I left in the 90s, right? I went to Kentucky, and then I went to Washington State. And there's a lot more to do in Athens now than when I left. And so I thought, okay, fine. Screw you. I'll show you. So I just started going around and finding – we have a drive-in movie theater in Athens, right? I don't know. I think we have one left. Right. And there's. And I don't even know if it's open. The last time I checked, there Air might Ford be – had one. 
Yeah. Last time I checked, it might be less than 30 in the United States. Are you serious? It's low. It's low. So So I'm here with um, Doug Minter. Uh, Doug and I, dude, we were in Delta Four. Yes, sir. Combat engineers. Now, people who don't know what a combat engineer is, besides me going all fanboy, how do you explain to people what we did in the Marine Corps? Uh, We're just grunts, infantry guys who blow shit up. That's right. That's all. I tell <laughs> That's all the only difference. We get to blow a lot more shit up than a regular infantryman. <laughs> I'm just a grunt with a bomb degree. Yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> I'm a grunt with a bomb degree. I uh, <clears throat> I met this uh, force recon guy about a month or so, two months ago, and uh, he's he's one of those guys. He he just recently separated. And then went uh, private contractor. But he's one of those guys that when you walk in, you look at him and you think, okay, there's something different about this guy. And uh, he was, uh, so we just could talk. And, and I, he hadn't said anything about being in the military. And I said, uh, what was your MOS? And he just kind of looked at me. And he said, what? what was your MOS in the military? He goes, I was a force recon, Marine Corps. And so I was a combat engineer in the Marine Corps and he just paused and looked at me for a second he says you guys are crazy <laughs> I got this force recon motherfucking Marine telling me I'm crazy exactly well you you know you remember, remember when we flew in the country I think the first time we had uh, chow they had built that makeshift lunchroom right and we walked in and everybody started clapping when we walked in there and I was like Okay, we're a bunch of reservists from East Tennessee, and you're freaking happy that we're here because we're the ones supposed to defuse all the minefields. Right. <laughs> so they thought we were freaking heroes, and there was everybody in there. You know, British Special Services and uh, Special Forces and everybody else that was already there before us, and they were looking at us like, thank you for being here. That was, that was a trip. I, that was a trip, and I didn't understand at the time – that was the, uh, I think they said that was the toughest minefields since World War II that we were oh, going yeah. through. Oh, yeah. I mean, how many mine plows did we blow up? How many, I mean, we just started pushing. Stuff out of the way. Yeah, just, it's just nuts. Right. And we were, and I remember I remember that morning before, well, might have been the night before the attack. Um, they told us 80, I think it was like 80% wasn't supposed to be there the next day. Yeah. That's why they only gave us. We only had like three hundred something rounds, and I was. I remember going up to Sergeant yeah. Tucker, going, "Hey, where's re up at? You know, where are we supposed to re up for ammo?" He's like, uh, "There is none." And I'm like, "Yeah, I got three hundred rounds, dude. Right. For real?" <laughs> so we were expendable. We were expendable. We weren't supposed to make it. And I don't know about you, but um, I get this accusation sometimes. People's like, "Well, you just don't care. You don't give a shit." And it's not that I don't care. I don't give a shit about things. It's just that nobody's dying, and I'm not stressing out. And I, I'm not a psychologist. I just kind of think that maybe that experience of thinking I'm not going to be here tomorrow and going through minefields and being under fire, and all of a sudden you wake up the next day and you're like, shit, I made it. <laughs> And then when you have these real problems, you have these problems in life, all of a sudden you have this whole new view of it that, eh, nobody's dying. Well, yeah, I think it gives you, 
you know, they talk about muscle memory for athletes. Right. You know, when they start getting into stressful situations, that muscle memory takes over and their, their bodies just kind of know what to do, um, which is why they're able to do amazing things. I think a lot of times if you're in the military, you, you create that muscle memory. Right. Dealing with death and stress and really weird situations. And so when you get back into civilian life, most of the time what you're experiencing is not as bad as what you experience in the military. So you're, you just have a tolerance level. It's like, eh, well, I, you know, nobody's shooting at me today. So right. why do I need to stress about I it? I don't have to dig a hole to sleep in tonight. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I can yeah. sleep there. Yeah. I'm good. And, yeah, it's just, you know, and I, I don't know. It just, I guess it just depends on what your military experience was like as to how much muscle memory you have but when you've been in combat it's pretty much the same no matter how little combat i mean we didn't experience what the guys in afghanistan experienced and uh, you know i don't i can't even fathom that i can't either i (laughs) I can't even fathom i often tell people i'm not going to compare my combat experience to anybody else's uh i uh, we weren't hand to hand we weren't going street we could see what we could see we could see see what was going on and, and i think that put us at a big advantage house to house fighting is brutal. It's brutal. And it's I, brutal. I couldn't explain it or couldn't deal with it. Um, now, we were talking a little bit earlier about a PTSD. The hardest thing for me is when they – when we, the hardest part of that experience for me was that bus ride from uh, Camp Lejeune back to Knoxville. And the reason that was hard for me is because I knew I wasn't going to be around you guys and I wasn't going to see you guys. And I'm going back down – to my home in Athens and I'm not going to be around you guys. I'm just going to be with a bunch of people I don't know. And that's was the scariest part for me. That was scarier than going to that minefield. Yeah. Going back home was the scariest part for me. And then you get back home and you're pretty proud of what you did. You, you, I mean, you, you did a damn good job and you were good at it and you get back home and everybody's like, oh, I'm so sorry you had to go through that. Like, all of a sudden, now I'm supposed to be. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I think for me, the cool, the coolest thing coming back home was uh, when we uh, landed in Bangor, Maine. Ooh. And all those Vietnam vets there. And I just let loose. I mean, I think all of us were crying because to be greeted by Vietnam vets, I think the, the proudest thing, it's not so much our performance. We did a great job. We did our job. Right. Um, but doggone it, to see those Vietnam vets decked out in their stuff, you know, they had their medals or pins and emblems and jackets from their units. A band. Their hats. You know, yeah. they were – it's the first time I saw Vietnam vets be able to stick their chest out with pride, and they and I was like, why are y'all here? Yeah. It's like, because we don't want you to ever be treated like the way we were. And, and that was the – just that that did it for me that was cool banger was cool because remember our plane was broke down yep and we had to hang it fell off of it like (laughs) the navigation i heard the navigation system fell off is what they said and i'd heard that they were how the hell and then it was hawaiian airlines it was hawaiian airlines and they ended up going out of business (laughs) right after that so they're they're no longer an airline anymore i don't think i don't know but we had to we had to lay over in shannon ireland 
until we can fly back into the United States yeah, in daylight because the FAA party. wouldn't let that plane fly in. I had and, a good time at the bar. <laughs> you know, I didn't drink then. And you know how bad I regret that now? I didn't drink then. I'm like, I was here. Oh, I was in Shannon, Ireland. God, and I could have been getting. I was toe up in Dublin. <laughs> I was toe up. Toe up. <laughs> From the flow up. The. Uh, I, I often wonder about I, one of the podcasts I listen to is Jocko Willink, and um, he's a retired uh, Navy SEAL commander and seen a lot of combat. A lot of men under his command had, had perished, uh, gave that ultimate sacrifice, and he was talking about PTSD. And a couple of things that he said is um, we talked about earlier that when you get back, you got to have a mission. you got to find a purpose. Uh, then you got to have that support group of people who know what you've been through. You know, is Israel has more people in combat per capita than we do, and they have lower rates of of uh, PTSD. And that's because the guys I fought with and served with, I live with. It's a small country, right? And and everybody's been through it. I mean, one percent. I think I saw a stat: one percent of the military actually goes into combat. And then you come back into this nation, and now you're just even less of a percentage, and it's it's a weird thing. So, Doug, one of the things I mean, I've been following you for a couple of years. I think we we connected on Facebook right around the time of the 25 year Desert Storm reunion. Okay. I think. Okay. I, I I'm I'm not certain, but I've been following you. I've learned a lot from you. That uh, <laughs> I I have. I've okay. learned a lot from you. Like the uh, the what's those lawn statues yeah you tell so the the lawn jockeys lawn jockeys and 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 they were so i don't know for sure if this is true or not but some people say they were used as emblems to let people know this is a safe house for the underground railroad but i don't know i don't know if that's completely true right and i'm sure that there's probably some truth to it i think it's probably overblown right um What's interesting about a black jockey yeah. is I think the first four Kentucky Derbies were won by black riders. Really? Yeah. So that is true. That I, is interesting, I think the though. First, first four or so, and then I think several after that were black jockeys were the ones that used to ride the horses. I think I sent you a link a while back about uh, barbers, barbershops. And um, I I get my hair cut at barbershops. I just like them, but and I'll have to find it, and I'll send it back up to you after I find it. The uh, about how African Americans uh, basically had built the barbershops that we know today, and that um, and I forget what they call them, something of the knife, knights of the knives, or knights of the blades, or something like that. And the irony that here these guys were who had been oppressed so long. Uh, by white America we're here with a straight razor <laughs> shaving these guys necks and any moment could have took it out on them but instead they built businesses and they built careers yeah. it's an amazing article I have to find that and I'll put it in the link to this podcast so if somebody wants to read it the Underground Railroad now you've been uh, posting a lot about that recently on Facebook yeah so what's well, uh, obviously you're <laughs> You're an African American or a yeah, black yeah. man. I don't know yeah, which yeah. way you, what, what you prefer, or if either one of them matters to you. But uh, so obviously you've got that tie to it. Um, but I went on a bike ride. What's your thing? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, really, well, you you 
drove up a while back too. And then recently you went on a bike ride. Yeah. So let's talk about all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, um, uh, one of my best friends in the world, he's, uh, was uh, in the Navy too. Uh-huh. His name is Jonathan Williams, and uh, he worked with the Blue Angels. So oh wow, really cool guy. He started biking across the country with another buddy of mine, and um, I was like, "Man, you guys look like you're having a great time." And so they got together, and Jonathan's white, and Andre's black, and they was like, "You know what? We're sick of all this fighting back and forth about race and politics." He goes, "Let's do it." A unity bike ride so they rode out to california and back last year went to, from california to dc wow and i was like man that is so crazy like you're actually riding bicycles right so people think when i say i rode a bike they think i'm talking about a motorcycle, motorcycle. right I'm like nah, no you pedaled bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> and i said i'm going with y'all next year Right? I said, it would yeah. be a good challenge to myself. And it was easy to say it last year. Yeah, it was easy to say it last year. Right? Yeah, I did. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm going to go with y'all. And so then Jonathan calls me and says, hey, man, we're trying to plan this trip. Are you going? I'm like, yeah, where are we going? And he's like, I don't know. He goes, I said, let's follow the Underground Railroad, man. I've been researching this stuff for the past couple of years with me and my fiance. And she's a history buff. So this is stuff we do, right? Yeah. Well, she's from Canada. So, so that's the tie to Canada. Yeah, so we, we just going back and forth to Canada, Dayton, and which is a whole other story. But, <laughs> you know, there's all this Underground Railroad stuff just blatant. It's just out there in Canada. I mean, it's just really recognized. And uh, I just got off into these stories, which is amazing. Like, it's crazy. Yeah. It, we're not taught the real detail in school. No, we're not. It, it, and, and so... He goes, really? He goes, you think there's enough places that we can go? I say, absolutely. And he goes, okay. So they started in New Orleans. Okay. And we followed the Underground Railroad all the way to Toronto. So did you go to New Orleans? No. Oh, they picked you up here? They picked me up in Knoxville. I couldn't take that much time off work. Okay, okay. I barely got the time off that I got. <laughs> so I got, took three weeks off work, which I, I don't know, this blessed. So did you train that. for that? Yeah. So my stepbrother... Uh, as a personal trainer, so he kind of tried to get my fat butt in shape a little bit, at least so it wouldn't be so bad. Um, we started here in Knoxville and rode to Frozen Head State Park. That was the first. How many miles was that? Uh, I don't know how many, 30 miles maybe, 36 okay. miles. I can't remember exactly how many miles it is. It's not there. a bad bike ride. It's not a bad ride. I think we started in Oak Ridge. Okay. So, because it's kind of hard to get there from Knoxville safely on a bike. Well, that was my next one. Are you riding on the freeways? You riding back no, roads? you can't ride on the freeways. Oh, that's okay. Um, so we went all U.S. highways, back roads, um, and we would boost around any major city. Okay. So, like, once we got to, like, a Cincinnati, we would drive around the city to get to the next, like, U.S. highway that was safe. Yeah. Because people just run you over. Right. right? And... We wanted to be safe. And so it was interesting. The first place we went, we went to Frozen Head State Park. There's an underground railroad site there. There's a house that was there. and um, The park ranger was saying, hey, you know, we think there's evidence that slaves were hidden here um, on their way up north. And so they're going from there to Kentucky, from Kentucky to Ohio. Yeah. Once they crossed the Ohio River, 
um, you're pretty much kind of in free land. Right. And then you get go to Ohio to Michigan, and then you cross the border into Canada. So was Canada an ultimate destination? Yeah, Canada or? was the ultimate destination, but it's it's kind of interesting. But people groups people stopped along the way, I'm sure. Absolutely, and you know, for some they'd stay in Ohio. Um, mm. Ohio was actually the Cincinnati area is actually called Little Africa. There's oh, really? so many slaves trying to get, yeah, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of slaves trying to get across the river to get out of the Deep South. So the Ohio River was kind of the dividing line of what was considered the Deep South. Yeah. Versus what was considered free area. I mean, it was funny. It was really cool. We're in Ripley, Ohio, which is a great place for Underground Railroad um, history. And uh, we're riding in the morning, and I'm just, I look up and I see this road sign that says Free Soil Road. Oh. And I was like, that's so freaking cool. It you is. know, so. And and what's really cool about the Underground Railroad is everybody participated at some level. You know, it wasn't just, um, I think the Underground Railroad, it's kind of neat. In the Deep South, from New Orleans all the way up to about Tennessee. Yeah. Very little history. And And it's hard to find the stories. But that's where enslaved blacks helped other, you know, free blacks were the ones that were driving the movement in the Deep South. There so there were many. free blacks during slavery. Oh, absolutely. And that, I think that's a... Yeah, since the beginning, since 1600, there's always free blacks. And, right. And they were the ones that were kind of the main ones helping try to get enslaved, enslaved blacks to freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some white abolitionists. Um, I don't know if you remember the movie uh, Free State of Jones. I do. I and love that movie. That, that movie. And so we got to interview the... The relatives, uh, um, and 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 they told us two sides of that story. We got taught to the white side uh-huh. and the black side. Yeah. So he had three wives, I think. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So I didn't know that because the movie's just one. Yeah, it was pretty interesting. <laughs> it was pretty interesting. So, but it was interesting. So once we got to Kentucky or Tennessee, you start it starts opening up, and you can tell because we met some Quakers in Alabama and those women told us the history from the Quakers standpoint. Okay. So you basically got three types of people. You got abolitionists who were kind of speaking truth politically, making speeches, writing books, traveling around, trying to get the whole world to go, Hey, we need to quit this thing called slavery. And then you had conductors and the conductors were, you know, people of wealth Means, influence. Means and influence who felt like, hey, this is wrong, and I'm going to use my house and my means to help get slaves to the next station. Right. Right? Um, But they stayed where they were. Right. Then you had the real uh, heroes, to me, were the extractors. These are the people that's getting them. They're going down into the deep south and getting them out and letting them go to freedom. Wow. They're taking them the whole way. That's what a Harriet Tubman did. She was an extractor. Okay. So she put herself at risk. People like John Parker put himself at risk to go across into Kentucky and grab people, grab slaves and get them out. Because if you'd have got caught, one, if you'd have been a slave got caught that was on the run. Oh, yeah. It's not good. No. And two, it's, not good. it's not good for the abolitionists. It wasn't good for the conductors. 
because you're putting yourself at risk, your family. Why would you put yourself your at wells. risk? Your wells. Yeah, why would you put yourself at risk? It's like, well, this is a lot of land. I hate it for them, but I'm not going to jeopardize my kids and my family. There were people that said, hey, this is what we do. This is what this family's going to do. It's one of those things in life where you sit back and you think, I hope I'd have been that guy. You know, when you if, if that would have been me then, I hope I would have been that guy. Not the guy's just like, I, I'm just going to get through my life, man. I can't do anything. Well, and think about how complex it is now and, and the, the disruption politically that we're going through as a country. Mm-hmm. You know, I wonder if people, I think slavery was, we look back on it now and say, well, of course it's wrong. Like we're aware, no, right? But people didn't know. You know, you you when you're battling with, is something right or wrong? Mm-hmm. And then, what should I do about it? You're right. My mom and I were having <laughs> what's <laughs> right or wrong, and should we do something about it? So you know, if you if you try to apply it to today, you know, here's a clear example: Is it wrong? We're two vets, yeah, brothers in arms, fought together, right? Is it wrong for the NFL players to kneel? Is it right? Is it wrong? And what do we do about it? So you got two you got two diametric problems. You got is it right or is it wrong? So you gotta figure that out. Yeah. And depending on whether it's right or wrong, what am I gonna do about it? So I'll just <laughs> pretend you ask me. My okay. thought. I'll pretend you ask me. I don't care. Wow. I don't care. To me it's a <laughs> It's a financial issue. If I was an NFL owner and it was hurting my bottom line, yeah, I would care. Um, it's kind of like I told some other day. I'm, I'm not going to vote. And they said, "Well, you're. It's an obligation. You should vote. It's your civic duty." Said, no, 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 no. It's not. It's a right that's afforded to me. No, it's not even afforded to me. It's a right that our founding fathers recognize and protects with the Constitution. I have a right. Just like I have a right to bear arms, but it's not required that everybody in this country bears arms. So, you know, I don't, and it's, so therefore a vote is not required. Then the guy follows up with, well, if you don't vote, you can't complain. So wait a minute. If I don't exercise, I think it's the 14th Amendment. If I don't exercise my 14th Amendment right to vote, that therefore negates my First Amendment right to complain about the government? No, it doesn't. So to me, on the NFL thing, everybody, because they, People who know I'm a veteran, they're like, oh, I bet that upset you. I don't care. If that guy wants to kneel, I don't care. You're making it a bigger deal. Than what it is. Than what it is. And and, and, and here's here's the thing, and, and I've – I stand. I'm going to put my heart, my hand over my heart. I'm going to salute. But I'm not doing it out of this um, – Perceived patriotism. Right. I'm doing it because I fought with people that didn't come back home. Right. Right. Our Amtrak unit, there's two guys that got killed in right. that Amtrak unit that was with us. And I saw the grief on their face. We were so fortunate not to lose a single guy. Right. And every unit around us lost somebody. And, we and, and I was like, you know, so that's why I stand. I stand for the Vietnam vets who didn't come back home, who were brothers to the vets that welcomed us home. Mm-hmm. The first people we saw, Vietnam vets. That's why I stand. 
I stand for the legacy. I stand for the brotherhood because our government, I don't stand for the government per se. I stand Agreed. for my brothers because every war we've been in, there you can pick a side whether we should have done it or not, whether that was the right thing to do. Oh, I agree. Right? Every single one of them. But you... you so so we can disagree over politics right. and why we were sent, but you cannot disagree with the brotherhood that existed while we were there. Right. You, you cannot, said something... And I have to stand for that. However... I have no problem with somebody kneeling, protesting, not the military. Right. They are not protesting the military. Protesting and, military. And, and I don't understand why we get so ripped off the planet over the imagery of the flag, especially people that didn't fight, especially people that didn't fight. I don't get it, and, 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 and I'm not admonishing them. I'm not criticizing them. I just don't understand where you're coming from and then here's the other piece kneeling is about the humblest thing you can do that is the most respectful thing through the centuries you kneel before the king you kneel before your wife it's an act of submission you kneel, it's an act of submission so i'm like wait a minute this is like the coolest thing you could do in a protest i don't know what other cooler thing you can do right and now, if they were turning their backs towards the flag, got a problem with that. If they're spitting on it, they're if doing. They're, if, if they were doing something that was disrespectful, but a kneeling, the knights kneel to the king, you kneel to the queen, you kneel to the king, you kneel to the woman you love and ask her to marry you. Like that is such a cool act in and of itself. So I don't understand that. Well, and I even like when they were debating flag burning a few years ago. I don't care. Uh, I I get why people think it's disrespectful. I get all those things, but also get that we have this thing in America called rights. And, you know, there's a lot of rights I went and fought for that I may not like. Or there's a lot of things this country's done that you and I stood on the battlefield. Here's disagree. what I was going to say earlier. Yeah, you said something you. in that video, Anything is Possible, on YouTube. And um, you were talking about Sergeant Tucker, or uh, now retired Sergeant Major Hodsons, or you, you would stand lock and load, and stand beside those guys and die for them even up to today. And if we, if if if, if they called Delta Four back, if they called Delta Four back, and we had to go, I'm gone. Me too. Instantly. Instantly. Happy to do it. Lock and load. I'm gone. And have you seen uh, David Hodson lately? Mm -hmm. This guy's seventy years old. Hey, he scares shit out of me right now. He looks just like he did he, when he we left. Said, Come go, I'm gone. I would, I would. I uh, man, he's a great guy. I'm, I'm wanting to get him on here too. Such an he's an amazing individual. I'm so proud that he got to. I think he got to go back to uh, Vietnam. He did. Uh, it was one of those uh, uh, veterans flights. He yeah. went to DC and he yeah. went to Vietnam. And um, I think it helped him. I think it. I, I haven't talked to him since he's been back i don't think we haven't had a long conversation about his experience but i remember when we were i felt better when we get over there and i find out well him uh gunner mccauley uh, -huh. uh top done all these guys were former vietnam vets so when we got over there i was like okay we're good 
I'm good. I'm good. Because I know, if, you know, when the shit hits the fan, I'm following these guys. They've been there. I'm following them, and, and I'm good to go. But You Such said something about, about how we're, we're not educated. In so many ways, we're not educated in schools. Uh, certainly, when it comes to slavery and the history of slavery in America. Where I live, mind you, I grew up in this town. I grew up there. Uh, last year, I found out about this church called Beth Salem. Everybody's telling me, because that's when I started doing this 365 things to do around Athens. Everybody's like, you got to go out there and visit that church, Beth Salem. What's this church, Beth Salem? <clears throat> and um, that inquiry got me introduced to a, a lady named Ann Hitchcock Boyd. She's over the NAACP down there in, in McMinn County. And so she's over the foundation that watches after this church. One year after the end of the Civil War, this church was built for freed slaves. It was the first African-American church in the McMinn, Meigs, Monroe County area. Okay. And they built this church. And uh, uh, I believe it was a, a, a white lady donated land. And a couple other uh, white families had donated labor. And material <clears throat> coming there and built this church <clears throat> because the two pastors and I think there's somehow another related to Anne. The two pastors were illiterate because I mean they didn't teach your slaves to read. Um, these other white pastors would come in and they would they were teaching people to read and they would doing the scripture reading and these guys then they'd turn over to the other pastors and they would preach and I was just like you got to be kidding me. This beautiful story is right here in my home. Nobody mentioned it to me in school. Nobody mentioned it to me in life. I mean, if I hadn't grown, if, if obviously if I had grown up in one of the African-American churches there, because all of them have their they, ties back. Yeah, they may know, they, they knew their history, probably. Right, and they would all come back for a reunion every year. And so Ann invited me back last year to go to. I did the video, and she said, hey, we're having the reunion. I think it was in August. You got to come back. So, man, I show up. You know, and this church is, <clears throat> this church is kind of tilted a little bit because it's, it's not on a foundation. It's on rocks. And it's kind of, <laughs> so you walk in there, it's kind of tilted a little bit. Old pews. Uh, still got outhouses out back. Wow. And um, they always invite a guest pastor from a local church to come in and preach. And I was just like, yeah, I'll go. But right there and the other thing that ann told me that i found interesting she said that interracial dating was uh wasn't taboo at that time she said there's a lot of uh there's a lot of people who think that uh, a lot of times the slave masters were just taking girls and and doing and and taking them and having babies with them she said but no a lot of times People were just interracially dating. It just wasn't a taboo thing. It wasn't until like the 19th century or 20th century it became a taboo thing. And then the other thing she told me was after uh, they were freed, a lot of them went back and worked at that farm that they were once slaves. Well, you know, they. what else do they know? Well, I asked right. her that. And she said, well, not all slave owners were mean. And not all slave owners were bad. They just... They needed workers. It was cheap labor. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think that's, that's what else the, did you know? That, that that's pretty much the story of East Tennessee, because we didn't have huge plantations here right. until you got closer to Cookville and 
further out towards Nashville is where slavery was pretty rampant. Yeah. There in Memphis, Jackson, where you had huge plots of land where you could grow cotton, you could grow right. soybeans, you could grow corn. Here was pretty much subsistence farming. Well, like, she told me that here, slave owning a slave here was more of a prominent thing. Oh, yeah, I own some slaves. Uh, it wasn't like you're saying that you had to have them for this huge farm. It's just, no, it was a prominence thing. But And then there's another place where I grew up. I think a lot of it was utility, a lot of domestics. Right. Um, just reading the slave narratives in this area, mostly domestics, um, some specialty logging. There's yeah. a lot of guys that were cut, a lot of slaves that were professional loggers. You know, cause right. that, that's what was going on in East Tennessee. Well, East Tennessee is also an anomaly. Um, Tennessee was the last state to succeed, first state to rejoin the Union. Um, East Tennessee wasn't really ever Confederate. Nor Union. Nor Union. It was just kind of in the middle. We were just in the middle yeah. of a firefight, which I always laugh when I see these people, and I'm, I'm, I'm not a fan of a lot of things, but I see these people raise up the rebel flag. Well, this is my heritage. I'm like, you're an East Tennessee dummy. You have no... <laughs> rebel heritage is probably neutral or probably union, but I doubt you have this heritage that you think you have. It's not there. You're well, in East Tennessee. I live in a house that's 150 years old. Wow. Right, and it was built in 1867. Okay. Right, right after, right after the war. And the owners of the house, they were, people that built the house were Swiss immigrants. Uh-huh. And I think they were Italian by blood, but Swiss by where they came from. And when they they came over here, got to Chattanooga, came over here on a boat, rode a horse and buggy to Chattanooga, and then got a horse and buggy here to Knoxville okay. and built this house. And they were Confederate, right? But they, they're Swiss by <laughs> culture. So they didn't really have slaves. There's no record in their memoirs of them owning slaves, and they talked about the equality of the races in their memoirs, which is really, really, really interesting. Yeah. And and so th- I think it's the, the truth is stranger than fiction, and, and it's more complex. You could be a, a Confederate loyalist. Right. But at the same time, not believe in slavery they lived apart from everybody they had their own schools their own churches because they were like these people here are a little weird yeah Yeah, they talked about how peculiar their rituals were even down to the funerals yeah it's like we do things differently than them i don't understand them but i'm still a confederate yeah you know and his wife he would talk his wife's in her memoirs she talked about i'm a rebel girl (laughs) but she also was fascinated with equality and i think you can have you know what both. i mean you could you could be a rebel but yet if you're not practicing slavery to you the notion of being a confederate is a different context it's a different context and a different idea um, and <clears throat> i think that's a part of the problem that i have with identity politics today back to what's going on in america today is um i may not agree with you on this and therefore somebody puts me in this box in this box right. and well if you sit down and talk to me 
you, you may see why I don't agree with this. You may know my journey. You may, but you may say, but all this other stuff I like him about. I like about him. He's he's okay. And see, that's that's where I think we have this false sense of what equality is. We got to be intellectually curious <laughs> a little bit more than what we are. And and you know, I tell a lot of people. I don't know about this equality thing anymore because there's a step before that, right? So, so to me, I'd rather you treat me equitably than equal so, because equity allows equality to express itself. Right. Equality is a big deal. So now, uh, let me see if I can get this. Are you talking in regards to like affirmative action type no. things or – well? In some respects, but no, I'm talking about just human beings, right? Okay. So, for instance, so if you believe in the philosophy that equity allows equality to express itself, mm-hmm. and I want you to treat me, in order for you to treat me with equality, you got to treat me with, e- with equity. So if I'm blind mm-hmm. and I'm walking down the street, right, right, and you yell at me, hey, man, watch out for that car, yeah. that's not treating me equitably. It's treating me equal. Right. But I'm like, hey, man, there's a car coming to your left. Okay. You understand? You can't treat me the same way and get the same result. Okay. That's equity. Equity is understanding me and my situation. Right. And and then applying, you know, good principles to, to how you treat that person. You don't go to a man and say, hey, man, you look like you're a little menopausal today. Well, sometimes right? I do. Right. <laughs> Depends but, on dude. So, so it's just that, that you're, you're treating me as if I was a female. Right. And that's not equity. Well, and, and that's you know what I mean. And, and so so equity requires. But then how do you get to equity? Right. Empathy. Well, how do you get to Empathy. Empathy only exists if we have a common enemy, okay, a common foe, or we're in a similar situation, or we have a relationship that's deep enough for you to understand and empathize with where the other person is. See, and that's what that's I try to tell people. bigger than sympathy. I don't want sympathy. Sympathy, don't want sympathy. sympathy doesn't have a call to action. Empathy says... Dang, Scott, you drove all the way here from Athens. Sorry you had to drive all this way to interview me. That's sympathy. Yeah. Right. Empathy is, hey, man, you need some water? Yeah. Can I get you something? You know, welcoming. And and that's those are important words. You know, empathy, equity. Those, those, those are really, really important words. And it all goes back to being in relationship you know what i totally agree with you and, and <clears throat> the benefit that i've had and you've had uh traveling living in different parts of the country is i've met different types of people right and and probably the biggest one for me is um the homosexual community just the gay community living in the portland oregon area traveling up around seattle all mm-hmm. those things i this was a new community for me and I got to know a lot of these guys. And so when I'm back here where they're not as open, not as common, the community's not as large, as especially where I live down in 
in Athens. There's a lot of people there who they don't have that relationship, and so they've got all these uh, misconceptions. Yeah, and I'm just like, dude, if you just get to know them, all these things that you're thinking are going out the window, and it's the same way with that was the trouble I had when I did move to the Northwest. Is it's very white. I mean, it's very white. Yeah, when I lived in Bend, Oregon, I was the only black person that lived there. But I'd be damned if I wasn't treated like a king. Right. But I did miss the diversity, and that's one of the reasons why I didn't stay there. I, I just It was culturally just a little bit much. Well, and my son, you know? his best friend was Nick. His his mom and dad grew up in North Portland, which, was, uh, which is a, a predominantly black community, North Portland is. And she went on to get a law degree. Uh, they didn't come from from means at all. They both excelled in, in their life. She went on to get a law degree. He went on to become a designer. He's one of the top designers at Nike right now. And, oh, wow. Uh, yeah, some funny stories I'll tell you later. <laughs> but he's one of the top designers at Nike right now, and they're both African-American. They lived in our neighborhood. My son and him hit it off right off the bat, and that was one of the things I tried to do with my kids because here I am in a very white area, but I tried to make sure my kids were surrounded by a diverse amount of people. And I tried to make sure they saw me and how I interacted with people and that they were okay with that. Uh, for my 40th birthday, we flew down. You might think this is funny. Uh, we flew down. I took the kids to Six Flags. We didn't have any huge amusement parks. And so I took the kids to Six Flags. And, you know, Atlanta has a lot of it's, – it's a – black town yeah it's it was, chocolate city yeah they call it black new york yeah right? it's a chocolate city <laughs> <laughs> we're walking through that and, and my kids you know they they've been around a lot of diverse people like i said i made a point to make that happen so they were comfortable they were no comfortable idea. but my daughter at one point she said do you gotta be black to work here <laughs> that's hilarious <laughs> I started laughing. no no but it helps i'm sure <laughs> explain to her this is this is what the south is like um, now, Nick, back to that, Nick, uh, when I moved down, Levi and Nick, now just tell you how it worked, Levi was either at Nick's house or Nick was at my house. Uh, Nick either called me White Pops and Levi called him Black Pops. I mean, that's how these boys wow, were cool. in, in my home that's and cool. in his home. So they moved down to Tennessee with me for a few months, and uh, Nick's mom, never really been in the South, I told her, you know, I'm, I'm really worried. You're going to the South, blah, blah, blah. When I moved there, I'm Southern. I'm a Southern Baptist pastor. I'm a white male. I'm obviously racist, homophobic, misogynistic, Bible thumping. That's That was the box I was put into when I moved to the Northwest, right? Wow. And I'm just like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. Not really, but okay, I got to work my way out of this box. So a lot of people have the assumption that if you're white and you're from the South and, and then racism is just horrible down here. So Nick moves down with us and we're hanging out at a friend of mine's house and Nick's sitting around and he's looking. It's just a barbecue, people pitching horseshoes. And he's like, this is weird. I said, what's weird? He said, I'm used to going to a barbecue and then maybe, maybe being like one black family and a bunch of white people. Or like one white family and a bunch of black people. He said, but this is just like a mix. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And one of my buddies looks over at him and he says, where are you from? And he told him, Portland, Oregon. He says, 
I don't know what you were told about the South. He said, we all grew up together. This is, he said, I'm not saying it doesn't exist. There's not ignorant people. He says, but you're not going to find it in this group. And, and, I, and you're in a safe place. And I, and I think that's what it's about is you build your tribe of cool-ass people yeah. and let everybody else do what they got to do. Do what they got to do. But I, I guess where I was going where, before I chased that rabbit is the thing is if you travel, if you take the time to sit down and talk to somebody, not play Facebook ping pong. You know, when you get on there and you post something, I'm glad I post you said something that. Back. I'm glad you said that. I hate Facebook. I, I'm so sick of that, man. I'm so sick of it. But yeah, I'm, I think traveling is like getting a blood transfusion. It's right. that. It's that critical. It's that critical. I mean, you know, it sucks having a girlfriend in Toronto. And it's a 12-hour drive, 13-hour drive. But yeah, my God, when I go there, it's like my whole. I feel like I've been cleansed and, and it's a whole different environment and you get to learn so much more. I mean, man, I got partners from all over the world. It's sick. Yeah. Well, it's I, crazy. It's and that's the thing I like about this. I mean, you and I could have just chatted, you know, I mean, we could have sent a couple text messages or instant messages back and forth and, but we never got down to this granular level, and that's the thing it's, I like about. It's critically important. That's what I like about long form conversations. I mean, you take two people on pick your news poison, whichever news poison you like, and they've got maybe a six minute segment talking about these really, really deep issues. I mean, the border issue. And they skirt that's to a top. Deep, the, deep they issue. skirt to top. Right. You can't get down to the granular levels to what we're really going to do here. And that is... It's complex. It's it's very complex. And it's easy for me and you to, well, he's for open borders. Well, no, he's just got a problem with putting kids in cages. <laughs> and if you talk to him, no it might problem. be a little bit more Man, deeper no to it. I have no problem with us saying, hey, sorry, got to take you back to where you came from. Problem with that, but to separate a kid from their mother and their father—that's crazy. Well, and the only—and I and agree. I have, and I have no problem also saying, "Well, it's irresponsible for you to be doing it and putting your kids at risk." When but you, guess what? Why did you do it? And we also you know, have a and, responsibility and I, and I, and to make and, sure and, that that's our kid. Yeah. Uh, also, right? Yeah. That we it's have. Not, there's a you're not complex doing issue here. With this kid, right? Right. And. I'd be damned if you're going to deport me and I'm not coming right back to go find my kid. Right. So, you know, I get that too. I get all of that, but it's complex. But it's my complex. thing is this. My thing is this. What's the overall philosophy of why you do what you do? And I have a hard time with this present. What's your overriding philosophy? And you're saying make America great again. Okay, that's that the remix of Reagan? That's right. what he said. So I have a problem with that. Only because you saying we're not great. I, I got the real fundamental problem with that. Yeah. You know, when I see our men and women in the in the military and I see our men and women who are out fighting fires and our uh police, 
I see them struggling with opioids and struggling with, you know, trying to be mental health care workers as well as protect and serve. I see, you know, the struggle of our nurses, our LPNs, and, and what's going on with health care. Oh, yeah. You, yeah. you know, I see these or just beautiful education. people in this country fighting to keep 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 the thing going, keep keep everything on the tracks. And you say we're not great? Yeah. You kiss my ass. <laughs> you got to come up with a different line. He, he you you got to come up with a different line. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Come like up with one. something else, but don't say we're not great. I think it's an ugly hat, too. It is an ugly hat. And, I hate that hat. And, and here's the other thing. Here's why I don't like it. I don't like it because it's an I thing. Make America great. You didn't say we will make America great. Mm-hmm. That's a little different. We will make America greater. Okay, I can buy into that. Greater but I can't versus buy great. The fact because okay, is it you gonna do this? And everything he's done has been I. I did a good job over here. He's very I ego did driven. This. Dude, you're not the only person in this government. It's not right. just you. So I was telling somebody last night at work, I said, It's we. He's, <laughs> one, he's entertaining for me. I mean, that's what politics has gotten to me. It's my oh, WWE. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't buy too much into a lot of stuff. But the one solace I have is we have this thing in this country called the separation of powers. And <laughs> I very much believe in it, and I'm very thankful for it. Because that's, that's like, you know, you get these guys that are preppers, and they've got all these guns in case we have to fight the government. And I'm, I said, look, dude, we're the government. You know, if let's just say a president comes up and says, I'm going to send the military into the streets. Do you know what the military is going to do? A vast majority of that military is going to go into the streets to stop the other military from coming in the streets. Yeah. That's what's going to happen because we are the people. You know, exactly. police forces across this nation aren't going to just take up arms at the command of a president. They're going to they're going to stop at their county lines and say, no, this ain't happening. We have this thing called separation of powers, and that's that's the one thing that gives me solace because he can go out there and say a lot of stuff that he says, and a lot of times I'm just it ain't gonna I'm, I'm just getting the popcorn, right? <laughs> I'm just getting the popcorn. Yeah. But uh, we but have that separation I, I think, of powers I think thing. What we have to concentrate more on is how we treat one another. That's my big thing. That's back to the identity politics thing. We're not we're we're putting people in boxes treat, instead I of listening to. You, I want to treat you with equity. I think that's how we get to. So my favorite Bible verse goes to that. It's the Hebrews call it the Shema. It's a hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one. And you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is like unto it. And this is what Jesus added to it. <laughs> love your neighbor as yourself. As yourself. But the thing is, what I always taught people was, I can't love you any more than I love me. And so when I see all these people out there that are just angry and they're throwing all this hate and they're miserable it just tells me that they're they don't like them they don't like themselves they don't like themselves and when you can get to that point to where i like me and i understand my demons and i understand where i've been and 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 i've come to grips with that i'm a little bit more empathetic towards you and i can say you know what probably i mean the kid i know committed suicide two days ago he's 20 26 and uh, I was talking to my about it. I said, look, you never know what people are wrestling with. And when you go out there and you just, if you don't treat them with that empathy and that equity that you're talking about, 
you're going to have some big regrets in life. You're going to miss out on some great opportunities of meeting some amazing people. Yeah, I mean, I'm uh, really fortunate to be here at the chamber. And, um, oh, yeah, we hadn't talked about that. What do you do? <laughs> what are you doing here? I, just, I, I try to help small businesses, yeah. right? And so we have a program that's out in the rural area as well as the urban area. And that's been an eye-opener. How so? Just because, I mean, I met, I've met, i met some amazing people in the rural areas, and a lot of them are Trump supporters, yeah. right? And we just kind of agree to leave the politics out of our relationship because yeah. it's not worth it. The love that we have for each other is bigger than politics. Thank you. And so I've really – and we poke fun with each other. Right. You know, they've got the Trump signs and whatever, but when I'm with them, it's love and welcoming. I'm their brother. This is I got guys in Claiborne County. That's you, my brother. Right. It don't matter all this other crap. It don't come up in our conversations too much. Right. Because we could just agree to disagree over who you support or who you. But at the end of the day, it's about how we treat each other. It's it's how we. It, what are we doing for each other? It's how we judge the right. relationship. And, uh, you know, if I'm not treating my brother right, he's going to call me on it. Well, I, I wish that was a message you know, that we could get out more often. That, that's and, – and, and it's and, – and here's the thing. The people in the rural areas are legitimately going through some things that this government has just – and I don't know if it's just the government or just the nature of commercial – of capitalism, but we've forgotten our rural people. That, that's legit. That is straight-up legit. I think Trump took advantage of that, but I think it's legit. Oh, when I when, lived in the mountains when, of southeastern when, when Kentucky. I, I had a brother. Look, I had my, one of my best friends up in Claiborne County said, look, we're under oppression up here. And I was like, oppression? Like, that's a strong word to use. And he was real true and authentic with it. And so that opened my eyes to, damn, you know, there's some real issues. And you know, opioids aside, but the way the hospital, uh, lack of hospital care, lack of medical care, you know, consistent doctors, there, and that's just one item. Well, then you, you get know, spending you on education layer, and, then and the education system, you the, the 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 brain drain of industries coming in and out of these communities and not coming back. Communities that were based on retail, I mean, based on um, certain industries that just don't exist because of the internet and lack of access to Wi-Fi. Yeah. I mean, so we were given assignments. We had a guy, this guy in our program, and uh, you know, I was like, hey, you got to fill this stuff out, you know, for your business so you can grow your company. He's like, okay, well, I got to drive to the library to get access to to the internet to broadband. I was like, wow, that's deep. <laughs> well, that's like me where I live on the I live on this farm. <clears throat> we can get Hughes satellite. It's expensive. Well, we I think it's like forty something dollars a month for internet, but it's really it's, it's maybe like now, a we got a farm dollar. in Sparta, Georgia, and this is a little more than that. Is it? Yeah. Um, well, and it's maybe that's for the higher spend. I mean, it's about a buck eighty a month. Are you getting TV with it as well? Maybe. See, we're just getting internet on this one but it's yeah, it's not cool. that strong and you know god forbid clouds show up and uh so i'm i'm constantly driving like to a coffee shop or 
a restaurant and using their Wi-Fi <clears throat> and doing stuff. I got to be cognizant. Okay, what am I going to be doing on the internet? Okay, I need to go do this. And that's my thing. The I'm glad you're out there, though. I mean, these rural communities and trying to spawn businesses. What are what are some of the businesses that are, that you're working with right now and that, that you find promising that people are into? Most of them, if they can. I mean, we've got a guy that sells uh, Christmas uh, decorations called Santa's Closet. Oh yeah. And he's out in Pittman Center up in uh, Gatlinburg. Okay. Got another lady that uh, I think she's in Gatlinburg as well, Sevierville area. And she sells uh, treats for animals. It's okay. called Bone Diggity. Bone Diggity. <laughs> and, and, you know, so it's a variety of people. You know, yeah. we've got, but then we've got just the regular guy that's just building websites, doing graphic art, uh, down to, uh, you know, people that are doing life coaching so it's it spans the gamut of people that we're assisting in our program there's a podcast i'm gonna let you write this down um what's the name of this guy side hustle school is the name of the podcast and it's chris gillibu uh chris wrote a book uh something about Starting a business, startup for less than a hundred bucks with a hundred dollar startup or something like that. But every day he posts a story about a small business or a side hustle that somebody started, right? And right. how they took it off. And some of them are making money and some of them aren't. But just this side hustle idea. Do you see a lot of guys out there trying to do? Absolutely, that? I call them hybrids. Hybrids. Yeah, somebody works a full time job, but then they've got this other business on the side. Um, you know, it's a great way to start a company because you don't have the weight, the full burden. Um, so you're you're not the guy that says, "Oh, quit your job and just get a loan and take off." Why? Yeah. Why? Because you know, there's just so much about being in business. Not every person should be in business. Thank you. That's right. the, and that's why I say, you know, hey, be a hybrid. It gives you the time to do the research. Gives you the time. I said, but at some point. You're going to have to, uh, you know, it depends on what your why is. Why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. Are you doing it because it's a passion? Are you doing it because it's something you love? Are you doing it because, yeah, it's just a hobby. It's a craft. It's just something I want to do. It's to give adds quality of life, you know, uh, to me. So as long as it's going to add quality of life to, to your experience, do it. So that's me with this podcast. I mean, um <clears throat> Because if it's not adding quality of life, why would you put up with that? Why am I wasting my time? Why are you wasting your time? Because, I mean, who wants to be in business? Who wants to give up a 40-hour-a-week job to work 80 hours a week to make less than you would working 40 hours a week for somebody else? And more stress. And more stress. You better love it. You better like it. You better have a good why. There better be some some passion around why you're doing it. Um, Because that's the only way you're going to get through those hard times. Well, I know like the job I have right now, <clears throat> it is not a job that I wake up in the morning and think, oh, it's, it's not the job that gets me out of bed. Right. Right. It's not that job. But and, if uh, that job allows you to do the stuff that you do want to get out of bed for, 
that's my that's thing. That's how you flip your perspective and make that job a, a, a wonderful means to the ends. That job provides me the funds and the flexibility to do the things I want to do. And that, for that's me. That's a great job to That's me. a great job. <laughs> that's a great job. And I learned that perspective from an author. He's a he's a speaker, and he had been speaking at a, uh, some company event. And the CEO come down, and the CEO's like, man, I love your passion for what you do. And he says, I'm not passionate about this. He's, oh, you're such a kid. He says, no, I'm not kidding. I'm not passionate about traveling in planes and giving speeches. That's not my passion. My passion is a nice glass of bourbon, a fine cigar, my two dogs sitting on my back deck in Arizona. This allows me to do that. <laughs> that's my passion. And that's where my perspective flipped. Okay, and you I'll gotta go do, do that, that job I you don't like. Do, yeah. So that I can do the things I enjoy doing. And now I found this. Oh, you got to go? All right, but Doug, I appreciate your time, brother. And uh, we got to do this again. Absolutely. Anytime you want to do it, just give me a call. And uh, Or, you know, we didn't get it's nowhere. It's been a thrill. It's we didn't get nowhere near where I, I mean, Like I said, I've had this conversation in my head 15 times. And, uh, oh, really? Like, yeah, I'll see you post something on Facebook. I'm like, I got to talk to that guy. So I finally got my <laughs> podcast up and running, and here we are. Number well, two, brother. Let's the do second it. one. Let's do it. Let's do it. Well, there you have it. Podcast number two has been recorded. And special thanks to my friend Doug Mentor there. It was a pleasure getting to see him after about 30-something years and just being able to sit down and reminisce. Hey, so what's coming up? I've got a trip planned. That's right. Going to Vancouver, Washington. Vancouver, Washington. Not Canada. Washington State. Not D.C. That's right, it's in the Portland, Oregon area. I'm going to be flying up. I'm going to be in a wedding up there in the Tacoma area for a couple of days. Then I'm going to fly, uh, roll on down and visit my children down in the Vancouver, Portland, Oregon area. Also going to get to see some roller derby. That's right, my daughter Lucky Punk will be skating September the 15th at the Clark County Event Center. She'll be rolling with the Storm City Roller Girls. So if you get a chance and you're in the area, stop by and see her. Cheer her on. Oh, and say hi. We'll get a selfie. That's right. We'll do a selfie. Uh, in the meantime, I've got three. Let's see. Yeah, three interviews already in the on the schedule for up there. Some great people that I've known for a long time. Really interested in sitting down and talking to them, having a conversation. Which brings up a, something. If you know somebody that you think, hey, I'd love to just hear them just sit down and have a long form conversation. Shoot me their info. Tell me why you're interested in listening to that conversation. And we'll see if we can put something together. In the meantime, you crazy kids, do something dangerous out there. <laughs>